This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this episode is my co-host, the Proceedings Editor-in-Chief, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hello, Ward. How are you doing? I, I'm doing great. We're uh, vaccinated and we're iterating into normalcy little by little. This Friday, we'll be meeting with the graduating class of the Naval Academy to give them their, what we call the Sabrowski Award funded by our good friend Greg Glaros, who was a Hornet pilot with me in the air wing back in the day. And Greg's generosity allows us to give a one-year student membership to every member of the graduating class of the Naval Academy. So we're very proud to do this. We do it every year, and we have since about 2012. We couldn't do it in person last year because of COVID, and the take rate suffered as a result. So we're looking forward to being there in person uh, as the line queues up for our station, as they do their checkout there in Alumni Hall, you and me and Bill Bray and some of the other grads who are on our staff look forward to talking about where they're headed. They wear little pins that indicate their warfare specialty choice. So we're like, when are you doing flight school? When are you going to TBS? When do you start SWAS? And that's as fun for us as it may or may not be for them. So that's happening on Friday, and we're looking forward to that. Yeah, also this week we've got the uh, annual meeting of the Naval Institute, and we've got a board of directors meeting coming up on Friday. There's a, an award ceremony on Friday afternoon at the Crown Sailing Center for the members of the class of 2021 who have written their capstone essays, so the winning capstone essays. So we've got those four essays coming in the June issue of Proceedings. The June issue we just wrapped up last Friday, so that's off to the presses right now and should be getting to people's uh, inboxes and uh, mailboxes on or about the 1st of June. So always good to have another issue of the magazine behind us. And now we press on to the uh, the July issue. Well, and what was also enjoyable is the team actually got together in Beach Hall for, as you've said several times on the show, Blue Lines, which is our last chance to sort of take a look at the layout and, and in my case, uh, make sure the right ads are in place. But it was great to sort of have, you know, let's just say normalcy in terms of the team being co-located for the first time in some months. So this team has worked very hard and, uh, you know, has kept the, the trains running in the COVID environment. And uh, that's been a, a credit to the talent we have on the staff of the Naval Institute. We're happy to see the old gang uh, together once again. And we look forward to doing that in person increasingly as uh, the, the weeks and months go by. One last thing that we're doing next week, and I can't believe it's already next week, is commissioning week. Our headquarters, as we've said before, is located on the Naval Academy grounds on Hospital Point in Beach Hall. So we're sort of like Monaco to France. Uh, although we have no official you know, affiliation with any government entity, 
you know, Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy. We are residents of the Naval Academy yard with great pride uh, since our beginnings. Uh, but that means that we get to be there for commissioning week and all the events, including the Blue Angels will fly on Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, we get to see the new routine with the new Super Hornets. I'm very excited to see what changes, if any, there are. I believe there are some different things they can do with the Super Hornet that they couldn't do with the Legacy Hornet. So that's going to be great. I don't know. Where did we land on Herndon? Are they doing Herndon? Do we know? Well, I haven't heard. That's a great question. Yeah, the Herndon Monument climb for the end of plebe year. Uh, so that'll also be what the, uh, is at the end of this week or the beginning of next week. Monday. Well, usually that kicks off Monday, right? That's the first thing. Uh, didn't right. do it last year, so uh, the class of, what was that, 24 did not do one. Um, and uh, so they're about to be youngsters, or they, you know, they are youngsters. Um, or maybe it's a class of 23. I, there's math here, so I, I apologize. Um, but I know that this is, you can't do the Herning climb and socially distance, right? No. But the brigade is fully vaccinated. So I know that there was some discussions. Yes, no, maybe. I, I can't remember as, as we talk now whether, whether we decided to do it or not. But I think they are doing the ring dance and they are doing Blue Angels and they are doing graduation at the stadium. So those are all massive improvements over what we were able to do last year. I happened to play a charity golf tournament as a rep of the Naval Institute yesterday with a member of the class of 2020. And, uh, Alex, who's now, he's gone straight from graduation to uh, PG school to get his degree. This guy chose surface nuke. So he it's a weird career path. I forgot how perturbated it was. But so he's getting his master's degree in systems engineering. Then he goes to a ship to get a swope in. And then he goes to nuke school. So that's sort of a, a inverse of what submarines do, for instance. But Alex right. was commenting on his graduation. Right. And remember, what, what was the name? Tranches or what was the name for the five different things they did? Yes. So they essentially last year, they brought them in um, in one fifth of the class at a time. So you'd come in on a Monday, pack out your room, put on your dress uniform on Tuesday in T court, get your graduation and then hit the road. And then the next fifth of the class came in Wednesday, would graduate Thursday, hit the road and then Friday to Saturday. And so they did one-fifth of the class at a time. And then the Blue Angels flew over the final fifth of the class just in a T-court formation um, for that for that last group that, that were the last to graduate. Yeah, they did a really cool bomb burst right over T-court. Uh, I actually have a GIF, GIF, GIF of that that's uh, really cool. So he, he, Alex sort of said, yeah, it was the best of a bad situation. It was enough, you know, and I feel like uh, we were able to salvage something there. So it was good to see that attitude. But obviously, the ability to do it with family there and other things. I think each graduate can have four ex um, representatives from their family in attendance for the duration. So little by little, you know, coming out of the, the bunkers here and, and getting back to quote unquote normal. So why don't we get to our guest? Yeah, let's get to the guest. So uh, joining us today from U.S. Coast Guard Station in Jonesport, Maine, which, if you're familiar with the, uh, the the New England coast, is you know about as you can't quite get there from here, is how the locals would probably say it. I'm, I'm probably massacring that. that. But uh, Coast Guard Chief Petty Officer Phil Null, uh, who is the third prize winner of the 2020 General Prize Essay Contest, uh, which is our granddaddy of all of our essay contests, and Chief Null was on the show last year 
He placed in uh, another one of our contests, and he's a, uh, a repeat offender, an often, often repeat offender uh, for proceedings, and writes just great, great articles for us. And so, uh, Chief Nell, it's great to have you on the show again. Afternoon, Mr. Hamlet. Thanks for having me on. Weren't you in a parking lot last time we talked to you? I was. It almost happened again today, but it was going to be from a golf course like you were on yesterday. But uh, my game is not as strong as yours, so uh, I think I got replaced on the team. I, I don't know. I don't, my game was very unstrong yesterday. We played TPC Potomac, which was a, a tough course. Uh, it was a tough format, so enough of my woes. At least we were. At least you're golfing, right? And so that's that's there. We go. So, Chief, your uh, your essay that we published, it's uh, for our listeners, they can find it in the May issue of Proceedings. It starts on page 32 and 33. It is titled The Fallacy of Presence. And I'll just read a little bit. Um, so the deck says, uh, presence that is not backed up by authorization for substantive action is rarely a deterrent. I remember reading this one in its draft format. Uh, and immediately my mind, when we talk about presence, uh, goes uh, goes straight to places like the Black Sea or the South China Sea, where the U.S. Navy and the Coast Guard are doing presence operations to try to, uh, you know, reassure our allies or to push back against the behavior of the Chinese or the Russians or other other uh, belligerents. Um, but your essay is about this. Uh, it takes place uh, at the start, at least in this little known place uh, of geography that uh, is a gray zone, if you will, between the United States and Canada. And that's where you're stationed up there at, at Jonesport. So you, your, your team at the Coast Guard Station in Jonesport, you look out over and do presence operations in this uh, Gulf of Maine gray zone area. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So probably not, uh, not as highly contested as the South China Sea uh, by any means, but the uh, it's called the Machai Seal Island Gray Zone or the Northern Gulf of Maine Gray Zone. And it centers on a on a small island out there called Machai Seal and a, uh, a rock just north of that called Black Rock. Um, the Canadians and the United States have had a dispute about about those two uh, two little uh, pieces of land since uh, the Treaty of Paris. And it's been ongoing and never settled. Uh, so right now you have overlapping exclusive economic zones and even uh, exclu- uh, territorial seas uh, in that that area, um, which if you uh, if you ever watch documentaries about it, and there are several out there, uh, it, it generates quite a bit of conflict uh, at times and uh, and a lot of frustration, I think, on the on the part of those that are in charge to try and enforce laws up there and keep order. And, and the main con- point of contention is uh, fishing rights. It's uh, main lobsters. Uh, so this is a, an area where there is just incredible fishing riches and there's a, uh, a fishing fleet from Canada. There's a fishing fleet from the United States. They end up in conflict at times. Uh, the uh, the U.S. government's position on how to handle that conflict is uh, different than the than the Canadian government. And so you're you find yourself and and uh, your your teammates up there at uh, Jonesport Station find yourself trying to um, it, it, you know at times police that uh, that area that gray zone. What do you see and what's it like up there? Sure. So I would say that right now uh, in, in present day, uh, things are peaceful, right? There's uh, there's shared um, uh, shared kind of management, I guess, of the area as far as the fishermen are concerned. But they're left to they're left to enforce and manage themselves. So the uh, on the United States side, the U.S. fishermen comply with U.S. laws on the Canadian side. The Canadian fishing fishermen comply with uh, Canadian laws. 
And there's no overlap in the two. So uh, the United States uh, enforces its laws on uh, on U.S. flag vessels and uh, and not on the Canadians. And that's just a ma- as a matter of practice and uh, and kind of uh, shared respect for the for the two nations as the dispute's ongoing. Uh, in the past, however, there there've been uh, shootouts and gear conflicts where one the fishing boats of one nation will deploy their gear right over top of the uh, the fishing gear of another. Um, there've been a lot of fights that, uh, that came into the headlines, generated movies, generated books. I have not had the opportunity to see any of those. Luckily, I guess, cause we, you know, we want everyone to play by the rules, but, uh, but the fact that it occurred got me thinking about the other gray zones of the world and how, how the management of the gray zone that I've experienced, uh, and specifically related to federal living marine resource laws is not necessarily a uh, an easy thing to power project uh, to other nations where jurisdiction would be even more in dispute. You mentioned that the laws uh, and that the, the way that they manage those living marine um, resources, that the Canadian laws are different than the U.S. laws. You, as a U.S. Coast Guard, you're trying to enforce U.S. laws. There's gray zone out there. Um, at times, there's been conflict between Canadian and U.S. fishermen. Uh, tell us a little bit about the difference between the, the laws. What are some of the, the conflicts that can come up with, you know, the way that the Canadians try to regulate those living marine resources versus the, the U.S. laws? Sure. So probably the most glaring example, and one that you'll see in the headlines now, is about the uh, North Atlantic right whale. Um, the species is down to, you know, I think last documented was 350 whales that are in existence of, of the entire species. Um there's some debate about, you know, what's causing them to uh, to limit their numbers. But uh, I think uh, there's a general consensus that trap gear, lobster trap gear or trap and pot gear and the lines that extend from the ocean bottom up to the surface of the water where the buoys, that they recover them, uh, that those lines. The whales are unable to feed, unable to move and, uh, and eventually you know succumb to the, the pressures of that line. Um, on the United States side, we've we've implemented a ton of regulations to ensure there are weak links so that those lines break, uh, ensure that if the lines become disconnected from the buoys, they sink and are no longer a danger. If the gear's left just floating out there, there are stringers in lines that identify kind of what region that they came from so that we could, uh, you know, potentially take action to reduce fishing pressure there and, and hopefully save more whales. Uh, on the Canadian side, it, they take a different management scheme where kind of those passive measures that we're using aren't uh, aren't employed. They wait for a, a whale sighting and then remove the gear from the water, uh, which has its own benefits. It's something that we we haven't necessarily done, but um, it's not passive. So, you know, the whale has to be sighted for anything to occur. So that's that's probably one of the glaring differences. And that's one of the uh, those regulations are being hotly debated right now down in Boston by the uh, Fishery Management Council, probably going to get more restrictive. Uh, there have already been lawsuits filed to uh, to do a moratorium on lobster trap fishing uh, just to protect that whale population. Uh, definite concern for, for a lot of uh, a lot of people in this region. So back to the, the premise of your article, the fallacy of presence, right? So there's uh, different rules and there's uh, different uh, nations, fishing fleets, in this case, the U.S. and Canadians. Um, and you're out there, your, your teams are out there policing and trying to enforce U.S. laws. There's overlapping territorial seas 
overlapping uh, exclusive economic zones. And so when your team, if you're out on a, on a, a small Coast Guard cutter and you see um, Canadian fishing vessels or Canadian lobster boats, they're not conforming to U.S. laws, U.S. environmental protection laws. What can you do about it? So there are always enforcement options, right? And this isn't to say that the United States is limited from from taking uh, taking any enforcement action. It's more of a general, you know, this is what operations are like in disputed waters. I think that's where the crux of my article. And in general, um, with most uh, most operations on the water, the flag state's jurisdiction is limited to those vessels that are registered with the flag state. So U.S. vessels are under the jurisdiction of the United States. When they go out into the high seas, they remain under the jurisdiction of the United States. Uh, foreign nations do not have jurisdiction over them in most cases. If a, uh, if a foreign vessel crosses the 12 nautical mile territorial sea limit, they've effectively entered the United States, crossed the border, and are now subject to, uh, to our laws. Gray zones make all of that kind of in dispute, uh, particularly at 12 mile line. So uh, when things happen there, it, it becomes a, a lot of coordination with you know, the, the, uh, the nation that flagged the vessel that's involved. Um, here in the Gulf of Maine, you know, we're lucky enough to have a, a great neighbor to the north, uh, Canada. In some other, uh, some other areas, it's not the same. A good example is the, uh, there's a gray zone between the U.S. EZ and the Bahamas. Uh, the northern end of the Bahamian claimed EZ intersects with the United States and, uh, and overlaps. Well, the, the Bahamians nearly signed a uh, bilateral agreement with the Chinese to allow the Chinese to fish their EZ. Uh, with that overlap, what we would have are potentially Chinese vessels fishing in the U.S. EZ, or at least what we claim to be the U.S. EZ, even though it's disputed. Um, because of the dispute, the question of what enforcement action U.S. forces could take in that area, would it would be the most complex nightmare, I think, to, to try and iron that out and figure out what we would do. Uh, I'm sure there's a good answer for it, but for those on patrol, I think the Kind of one of my biggest points is that it is complex. These are not easy cases. Even a uh, a vessel that may commit a crime in the United States and then flee into one of these disputed water areas, uh, can we continue to pursue that boat and uh, and enforce our laws? I think that's something up for debate, uh, and that's something that's that's got to be uh, got to be decided on. You know, generally in real time before the vessel is able to reach the territorial sea of the foreign nation. So it's uh, they're very complex. It's not as easy as applying law uh, right when a vessel crosses that 12 mile line. You know, they're subject to all all U.S. laws that uh, that apply. Um, the problem is, is that we, we end up kind of just providing presence and that's it. Uh, we have boats out there and suddenly some of these actions become uh, I think the uh, the latest national strategy called them a malign conduct. So they're, they're doing things that are counter to our laws, but there's really no easy option on how to, how to kind of enforce that. Uh, foreign flag nations don't, don't respond well to uh, civil penalties levied by the United States. More than likely, we wouldn't be able to levy a civil penalty because who do you do it against uh, if they are foreign flag? Uh, generally, those come from the, uh, the host nation, the parent nation of the vessel. So what you're left with is, your hands are kind of tied. What do you what do you do to make sure that this conduct doesn't happen? And the answer 
uh, is really not just to provide presence. Uh, there, there's got to be some more substantive action. Domestically, when there's a, a fishery crime, this is a good example, I think, uh, a fishery violation, we'll call it. Uh, most of them are taken through a federal administrative civil penalty process, which is non-criminal in nature. Nobody goes to jail, right? The only time it normally becomes criminal is if the fisherman opposes or resists the boarding or somehow assaults the team, destroys evidence, something like that. Basically, prevents the team from doing their job to make sure that the fishing vessel is complying with all the regulations. Um, regardless of that, the, the overarching federal living marine resource laws allow, allow uh, officers to search and to seize and to arrest. Um, the seize is kind of the biggest one. I think that's really what, what we need to get to is how you can make at the end of the day, even the Chinese distant water fishing fleet with all 1,500 vessels or give or take that are involved, we have 1,500 identified vessels that are, that are doing the conduct, right? The easiest way to get them to stop is to take the gear or to make the gear unusable to retain fish. Um, same thing applies here domestically. If, if we have a vessel that is skirting the uh, living marine resource laws, the easiest way to make an immediate impact is to make it so that they cannot fish, you know, continue to fish that day. Uh, but in general, we defer to this administrative civil penalty process, which really just leaves us at presence. If I get on board your foreign boat, uh, you know, within a disputed water and say, hey, you're you're violating this law. Here's a here's a piece of paper that says I've documented your conduct and I'm going to tell your your parent nation. I just don't see an outcome from that. The outcome is that we stop you from fishing. And you don't have the authority to do that. So as, as you currently operate up there in the Gulf of Maine gray zone, if you see whether it's a, uh, a, a Canadian fishing vessel or a Chinese distance water uh, fishing fleet vessel uh, operating and doing something that's in violation of U.S. law or international uh, uh, fishing laws, um, you, you don't have the authority to stop them and to to do something to, to make their rig not catch fish anymore. You can't you can't incapacitate that fishing vessel. I would say that you couldn't do it easily. Uh, there's a, there are a lot of times where it's pretty clear cut, you know, where you could, um, you know, what what authority and what enforcement actions you could take as you get into these disputed waters. All that's up into question. Uh, you know, are we. There are a lot more kind of international implications to it, um, a lot more phone calls that have to happen. And something as easily easily done as uh, seizing lobster or seizing a trap now becomes a, uh, you know, a State Department level conversation, I think, or potentially not always, but it could be. Do you see Chinese distant water uh, fishing fleet vessels in your area in the Gulf of Maine? So thank God, no. Uh, but I have uh, I have deployed to uh, Cameroon and Ghana in the past. And, uh, you know, I've, I've seen the, I would just call it the havoc that can be reached uh, by, uh, you know, by that level of fishing, that kind of fishing pressure. Uh, it's almost, uh, it's very uh, concerning, I think, to see uh, vessels that can carry you know, 600 to 7,000 tons of fish in their hold. And then uh, they're not pulling back into port. They're coming up to refrigeration ships. Uh, moving their catch over there, the refrigeration ship remains on scene until it's full and then it goes. Uh, and these guys just continue to fish. So it's 
uh, it's one of those things I think that, you know, kind of gives you the chills, right? If you have any, uh, any care or concern for the, uh, the environmental impact of these vessels and it, it basically any modern fishing boat could, you know, hypothetically put the pressure on to any of these fisheries that it's involved in. So it, the, the management concerns are real. I think a lot of times there's, uh, there's kind of a, more of a willingness to treat these as infractions versus maybe the seriousness that they, uh, they need to be treated with because of the, the impact on the fish stock. So extrapolate your situation there in the Gulf of Maine in that gray zone to a place like the South China Sea or the, you know, the, the, the North Pacific between the United States and Russia and that Barents Sea, not Barents Sea area. Um, yeah, it is the Barents Sea, right? The Bering Sea. Um, so if, if the Coast Guard is present and can watch this activity happen, but doesn't have the authority to seize or stop or disable uh, fishing, fishing gear, right, then you're kind of just sitting along and watching. And the, over time, that, that sort of undercuts the value of presence, right? Because if you're there and you can't do anything and they know that you can't do anything, what, what happens? They just keep coming back and doing the same thing over and over again? Right. I think the, uh, you know, if you uh, read the latest kind of headlines from from how uh, how fishery enforcement's going extraterritorially. So out out in the South China Sea and elsewhere, um, we're really documenting and we're referring. Right. We, we see these things happen. Uh, the Galapagos, I think, provides one of the greatest examples. So the, the Galapagos Islands, there are fifteen hundred uh, Chinese squid fishing vessels that were right outside of the EZ of the the uh i think the peruvian nation but um you know they're right there they're right up right up against what what this uh this nation claims they even had a couple that uh that came inside and they were able to take enforcement action but beyond that one line what you had was wholesale slaughter really of uh of a, a squid fishery down there that is protected by a regional fishery management council and the only recourse for all of these nations that are watching this happen is to report it to the Fishery Management Council, who then reports it to the host nation, which in this case is China, uh, who may or may not be a signatory of that that uh, fishery management plan. And uh, you know what what's the incentive really for them to uh, to comply? Um, and there's not there's not a lot. So that's uh, you know one of the arguments is I think uh, I I read some comments from the uh, operations petty officer aboard or operations officer aboard the uh, Coast Guard Cutter Bertoff, and uh, his ship was actually deployed. Cutter was actually deployed down there to uh, to monitor this, and he advocates for uh, bilateral agreements uh, with some of these nations. But there's a couple problems with that. One, the United States is behind the eight ball in terms of fisheries because China's already signed uh, quite a few agreements bilateral agreements and, and others with uh with nations around the world and now fishes i think it engages in almost every fishery you know high seas fishery in the world um fishes in quite a few of the uh the ezs even with the uh, the squid down in the galapagos china takes 32 percent of the entire catch uh, landed per year down there or at least that was like just a few years ago so you know it shows you that they have this huge impact if we we can't sign bilateral agreements now to, to kind of restrict that. So the option really is that we somehow make these uh, make the, the laws on the books, right, that we have now or maybe new laws uh, apply extraterritorially and actually enforce the regulations that are implemented by the fishery management councils. 
Uh, so, for example, the South Pacific Reg Regional Fisheries Management Council that controls the squid off the Galapagos, they've implemented regulations after seeing this uh, Chinese pressure on the fishery to uh, require licenses, require quotas, um, you know, require declaration into the fishing area and then monitoring of the fleet while they're underway. I don't think it would be too big of a stretch to uh, to kind of adopt some of those adopt some kind of verbiage in uh, in federal law that that would allow us to enforce those regulations or of any uh, fishery management council that's recognized. So uh, above your level, what are you hearing at uh, regional Coast Guard headquarters or even at, uh, you know, Coast Guard headquarters in Washington interactions with the State Department? Right. This is. This gets very political, very political, small p political, uh, but diplomatic, right? It becomes nation state to nation state sort of negotiations. And as you pointed out, the Chinese have kind of moved ahead and they've already, you know, sealed leases with a lot of these countries. And, and, and so they've got the agreements in place or they've bought off some countries, uh, you know, leaders to allow their distant water fleets to, to fish in or overfish some of those um, some of those marine resources. So what are some next steps? What should be happening now kind of above your level um, up at Coast Guard or at uh, or at State Department level? Yeah, well above my level for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's the ground counter. I, all I can say is that, you know, I, I would attest to what I've seen uh, firsthand. Right. And that's that gray zones and disputed waters create create a situation that that can't be solved by uh by the people that are out there on patrol it's got to be something uh something higher um civil penalties do not work to uh to discourage uh behavior seizures do um the you know when when you see uh in general i think violators are repeat violators uh once they've once they've done it once uh they will more than likely do it again uh, it's already been a habit in general by the time we uh, by the time that we detect it. So if uh, I think in large part, most commercial fishermen are trying to do the right thing, particularly, uh, you know, U.S. flag commercial fishermen. They, they recognize the value of sustainable fisheries and, and trying to, uh, you know, keep it there for the next generation. The. You know, there's different uh, different schools of thought on how that that's accomplished. Right. But I think we all have the shared goal that we, we have fish for future generations. The um, what has to happen is there, there has to be some kind of substantive um, consequence for engaging in you know that malign conduct. We're fishing illegally. If you cross the line and you're fishing, uh, we can't limit it to a civil penalty. We can't limit it to just observing that it occurred and then reporting it to a host nation. When we, particularly in areas where we have the capability to act, uh, disputed waters mean just that. I think that, uh, that the United States claims sovereignty over those waters, or at least in our case, right? If we uh, if we claim sovereignty, we should we should probably exercise it. Uh, would be what I would advocate for. Um, if uh, you know if that generates complaints on on the back end, it's it's just a, it's a situation that we need to solve, right? That uh, that's something that we need to solve at a much higher level. Uh, through diplomatic means and the, the easiest way to ensure that we have consistent management of fisheries and consistent enforcement is to to resolve those gray areas 
So I remember it was probably four or five years ago in proceedings, there was a, an article about the government of Indonesia had seized a number of Chinese fishing vessels operating in the southern end of the South China Sea, well outside of China's EEZ, well inside Indonesia's EEZ. They seized those fishing vessels and then they blew them up. They, they like lined them up, tied them together, put explosives on board, and they, they sank them right there. And that sent a very strong message. I don't know what the repercussions were diplomatically or economically in, in other ways from the Chinese, you know, from, from Beijing. I, there was probably some backlash there. Uh, but but that, you know, that, that put some real muscle in the enforcement. You know, it's like, hey, we're not just going to watch you do this in our EEZ. We're not going to just watch you. Uh, decimate our fish stocks. We're actually going to seize you if you're doing this in a place where you shouldn't be doing it, right? You're you're, you're talking about something like that, putting some teeth into these uh, regulations or enforcement mechanisms, right? Even uh, you know it doesn't necessarily have to come down to the uh, you know I wrote in the article the the dramatics of blowing them up, right? I think after that, what they ended up doing was just putting a series of pumps and hoses on the boats and uh, sinking them. But uh, same same kind of thing. I think if you really want to have an impact, uh, there has to be a seizure, right? There's got to be some kind of seizure that occurs so that the gear can't be right redeployed right away, right? Because I've seen it in the past where um, you know a vessel was found with unlawful gear, and if you don't seize it, what happens is the moment that you begin to drive away, or the moment that they recognize it's not going to be seized, it goes right back off the boat into the water. Uh, which is a a significant problem, right? If you make, I won't say make an example, but if you, you know, if you hold the line, right, and enforce the law and ensure that there's some kind of consequence uh, for even a few cases, I think think you said a pretty crystal clear example of how it's going to go, you know, for future violators, and you uh, definitely discourage that behavior. If you sit there and you watch it happen, and, uh, you know, it just, it's just going to continue to occur. I don't think uh, exposure... You know, I use Sea Shepherd as an example in the article. You know, they they use spo- exposure very well to raise dollars, to raise funds, to be able to operate boats. They don't use exposure to deter fishing. They use you know action to deter fishing. I'm not 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 comparing a uh, a nonprofit to a government, right? I know there's a lot more uh, a lot more at stake with the with the government, but I don't think anybody's trying to start a war here either. We're just trying to protect fish stocks. Um, even in New England. We've had multiple fish fish uh, fisheries collapse in you know in recent years, right? Like uh, cod is no longer a viable commercial fishery. Um, scallops, Atlantic sea scallops, are now restricted to a very short season uh, that could end at any time when the quota is met. Uh, herring is no longer fished to the uh, the level it once was. Whaling, obviously, is completely uh, completely gone from the face of the earth. So, um, you know, there's clear evidence from American history that uh, fishing is a uh, is something to be protected or we lose and we don't get it back. Chief, from your perspective, any, you know, sort of taking this up a level, we've been talking about, you know, fisheries protection, we talk about places like gray zones, South China Sea, Gulf of Maine, uh, et cetera. Um, but presence at an even larger level, not just against uh, fisheries protection, but against other missions like you know, the regional hegemony, the, the activities of the Chinese to build islands where there aren't islands, to build, you know, uh, sovereign territory in places that clearly was not sovereign territory. What are your thoughts on that? 
You know, I just read an article that the uh, the Chinese government passed the uh, Chinese Coast Guard Act, uh, which enables the Chinese Coast Guard to uh, to use force. Uh, you know, from my understanding, at least from the article, um, to use force against a uh, public vessel, right, of another of a foreign nation, should that that public vessel uh, engage in some kind of conduct, which seems to me like a pretty crystal clear act of war, I would think. But um, if if they were able to create these islands out of the middle of an ocean and now are able to, uh, you know, enact legislation that will let them, uh, you know, at least cover their, their own people domestically from taking, uh, from using force against the, uh, the government vessels of another nation. You know, what allowed that to happen? Was that, was that just because we limited our actions to presence? Uh, I think that's where my thought is. Is, uh, is, is presence enough? The uh, article is called The Fallacy of Presence. It took third prize in the General Prize Essay Contest for 2020. The author is uh, Chief Bosun's mate Philip Null, U.S. Coast Guard. Thanks for joining us from Coast Guard Station Jonesport, Maine. Thank you both. I appreciate it. Thanks for being a, a thought leader in all the ways that you have been. Thank you, sir. Thank you guys for providing the platform. All right. Our pleasure. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Until next week, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.